Welcome to episode number 54 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony. And we are members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How's it going, Jesse? It's going great, Tony. And how are you doing on this lovely Lord's Day? I am doing excellent. We uh, we made some slow roast, like slow like roast pork loin pot roast with sauerkraut. That was amazing. My wife is uh, becoming quite a very good cook, which is awesome. There's something special about slow and low. Yes, yeah. I just want to say that basically. Yeah, so pretty much every meal that we have now is going to be made in the slow cooker, which mm. I'm not complaining. Yeah, that's good stuff. So aside from slow roast, what are you affirming or denying this week? Uh, well, I just preempted myself because this week I'm affirming crockpots <laughs> because they're like the best invention in history, right? You, you just throw like whatever you want in a pot and you just leave it there. And then when you get home, it's like a delicious meal. If you think about it, it's a fantastic Lord's Day way to prepare a meal, right? Like no matter really what is. your Sabbatarian convictions are, the fact that you can just put a delicious piece of meat in a pot, especially like before you go to church, let it cook during the corporate gathering, come back, and it's ready. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And you just, I mean, it's just there. And it's actually pretty easy to clean up. It's really just, there's no downside to cooking with a slow cooker. Uh, you heard it here first. So what are you affirming this week? So this week, I guess I'm going a little more serious on this one. So this week, I'm affirming the life of Nabil Qureshi, who, yes. um, as many know, died yesterday. But I'm really just affirming what a faithful servant he was in his suffering and what a wonderful example that was, because I'm sure that there were many that will come out now and discredit him, especially from the Muslim faith, saying that this is his just punishment for leaving that faith. And he left an incredible legacy of faithfulness even while he physically suffered immensely and for everybody i just want to affirm that testimony it's a, a phenomenal phenomenal servant of the lord yeah and um there is a gofundme set up we'll put a link in the show notes um to help cover some expenses and to try to set up his wife and young child um for the future um unfortunately the life of a traveling apologist uh doesn't come with a lot of financial stability and i know that um his health insurance ran out quite a long time before uh, he actually died so there was significant expenses so we'll put that in there and if the lord moves you to give above and beyond what you're giving to your local church um i can't think at least at this point of a more worthy cause but i i totally echo that he was um for all the different theological disagreements we might have had, um, he was a faithful servant of Christ, and he is uh, enjoying his reward right now, which is sad for us, but glorious for him. Amen. That's well said. Yeah, definitely go check that out. And if you haven't yet read some of his, well, basically his more well-known work, which is Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, go get a copy of that. It, it's an amazing and helpful resource, especially for those who are interacting, as we all should be with others of different religious convictions. And it's a fantastic tool. It's worth it's worth the time and the money to read it. Yeah, absolutely. So what are you denying this week? Do you have any denials? I do, and I'm gonna get a little serious because oh, I'm denying I'm denying active shooters. Oh, okay, yeah. For right? yeah. So I mean, who could say no to that for sure? Exactly. So um for those of you who don't know, I work at a hospital in New Hampshire called Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center, uh, which is the largest level one trauma center in uh, New Hampshire. And on Tuesday, uh, a man brought a gun into our ICU and he shot a patient dead. And some of the details are coming out. We don't need to rehash that. But um, it was a stressful and terrifying day. Um, the kind of adrenaline rush that happens when all of a sudden you realize that this thing that you are doing is not a drill and that there really is somebody um, in your workplace trying to hurt people um, is pretty intense. So... Uh, my suggestion or recommendation coming out of that is if you are in a workplace and they are talking about doing active shooter drills, we call them code silvers at Dartmouth Hitchcock, but I'm sure other places have different things. Uh, take those drills seriously because um, really the only thing you can do to get ready for that is to um, take those seriously and then train yourself and then hope and pray that 
you know, if, if the worst happens that your instincts and your training kind of kick in. And we were really lucky because our instincts and our training did. And so we were able to come out of that with, uh, the only person who was injured was the, the woman that he shot initially, but it was a, it was a freaky, scary day. It was really stressful and chaotic. And, um, I came home and I hugged my wife extra tight and played with the puppy a little more than I normally would. And, um, just very thankful to be safe and alive. Yeah, both those things give us some amount of perspective. It kind of pushes out the silly things in your life, thinking about Nabil or thinking about a situation of the wickedness of man where there's a serious threat to people. Man, it does a number on you. Yeah. So what are you denying this week, Jesse? So I got to move, move us back into some lightheartedness before we just start turning into a weepy pile on this podcast. Let's so do it. So the time has come, and I, I feel like I'm going to be in really good company with this uh, denial, but the time has finally come to deny everything that's pumpkin spice because, <laughs> and I love pumpkin. I, like I'm down with some squash. Yes. You're going to put that on my plate or roast it up or put it in a pie. I'm down with that. It's just the pumpkin spice. Cause it's just a lie basically. And I, it is. I just can't handle that. Yeah. They should just start calling it what it is and be like, can I have a nutmeg, a nutmeg spice latte, please? <laughs> right. It's like nutmeg, allspice, whatever. So like I had some pumpkin spice tea this morning and, you know, notwithstanding the spice part, it was pretty decent tea, but the more I drank it, the more sickening it became just because it, just get rid of pumpkin. You should just call it spice. That's what it is. There yeah. is actually no like squash flavor. So the time has come. We, we have to rebel against this. It's, it's everywhere. Yeah. And the worst of all, we're going to cross a threshold here, Jesse. Oh, here we go. The worst of all pumpkin flavored fall treats is pumpkin spice or pumpkin beer. Yes. It is the worst. So I don't care who you are or what you have done in your life or what significant accomplishments (laughs) you have in your life. (laughs) If you tell me that pumpkin beer is good, I'm going to call you a liar to your face because it is not. I'm not sure, honestly, that I've ever had a really good pumpkin beer where I've said that was so good. I need to do that again. Mostly it's been like, well, I've had the experience. Yeah. And and that's, I left it. The best you can hope for with a pumpkin beer is that it's tolerable. Mm -hmm. Is it's not disgusting enough to, to dump on the drain. Right. Yeah, it, so. yeah. Pour out as an offering, so to speak. Wait, exactly. so one more, one more question about then, like fall flavor treats: candy corn or no candy corn? Um, I think we talked about this last year when we did, did our we? Halloween. It, episode. We've got to come back. Yeah, candy corn to me is one of those things that I think is kind of disgusting, but I can't stop eating it. Oh yeah, we did talk about yeah, this. If yeah, it's, this in, if it's on the table in front of me, I will eat it until I vomit. So yeah, I have to like push it away. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna rock some candy, yeah. candy corn. But what, what as about long as candy corn flavored beer? Man, I don't know. That also sounds like it's potentially just dangerous. Same type yeah. of situation, possibly. I think so too. All, here's here's maybe perhaps the worst thing then that you would really dislike is have you seen the pumpkin spice candy corn? Ooh, <laughs> I had um, double combination lint chocolate. Um, Ashley and I celebrated five years of wedded bliss on Friday, and so Congratulations. I on the way home and bought her like a pound and a half of lint chocolate for our anniversary. And um, they have a pumpkin spice chocolate this year that is actually quite good. Hmm. But the pumpkin spice candy corn seems... It's nutmeg. I mean, it's like chocolate infused with nutmeg. Although it does have a actual pumpkin-y flavor, so I don't know if maybe they actually have some pumpkin. Would you say it has a pumpkin afterbirth? An afterbirth? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, The Office. Uh, I love the I office. Love it. So before we even get into our topic tonight, we have a little housekeeping, right, to take care of in terms of we've got a little correspondence we want to talk about. So um, the first thing I will say is if you email us and we don't respond, that is probably mostly on me because I'm not great about checking the email. So if you email us and you don't hear us talk about it on the show or we don't write back, shoot us a message on Twitter or Facebook, which I am much better at checking. But um, – we have a couple emails to touch base on. So Jesse Martinez emailed us uh, and said that he has learned a lot from the systematic theology series, but would like to learn even more. And then he asked oh. for some book recommendations. Praise God. So Jesse, do you have any systematic theology book recommendations that you've found helpful? You know, that's a great question because most of the stuff that I've found super helpful has not been in the systematized form. And I'm trying to think of some, so most of the stuff for me has been like topical in nature. And that's sure. really what's driven me back into the scriptures. So the best book, and I think we've talked about this, but the best book that I've read recently 
that's been topical in that vein has been Mike Horton's book on the Holy Spirit. So that was what I would just recommend as a as purely topical. I, I would I'm would defer to you in terms of like if you have something sure. in particular that's more systematized. Yeah. So th- this question really is great. It it um, there's different levels of systematic theology, and so my go to is always Mike Horton, and that's because he has um, first of all he's Mike Horton, and Mike Horton is great. But he has systematic theology at every, basically at every level. So what if you're an absolute beginner or if you just became a Christian, but you want to really get into this, he has a book called Core Christianity that um, is a systematic theology that's very good, very basic. Um, if you listen to this show and you can kind of keep up with what we're saying on a regular basis, uh, that book is probably too basic for you. The next step up would be a book called Pilgrim Theology, which is um, still relatively basic. You could think of it as like an intro to fr- uh, intro to theology book that you might use in like a freshman intro to th- theology course in Bible college or something like that. Then the next step up is called The Christian Faith, which is sort of a, a single volume systematic theology that would be good for like an intro um, or a survey course in seminary. Um, we used it for systematic one, two, and three. Um, and then he has a series um, that is a, a four-volume set published by Westminster John Knox that covers the full gamut of systematic theology. It does it in a little bit of a different way than most do, um, but they're also very good, but those are very technical. So for our average listener, I would say start with Pilgrim Theology and if that is not um, is not satisfying, or if you feel like you want to progress beyond that, take a look at something like the Christian faith. Um, something in that level is a good place to start. Pilgrim theology is fantastic, and I think yeah. almost regardless of what level you're at, the beauty of that is one: Michael Horton writes exceptionally well and exceptionally clear. Yeah. And two, again, no matter what your level of maturity or engagement with the material, it's a really good way to either be introduced to these concepts from somebody who really knows them well, or if you're familiar with them, to rehearse these truths in a way that kind of distill it down so that you can speak to it and understand it better. So sometimes I think I do understand something and then I I read Horton and it's like he punches me in the neck because he reminds me that he's articulated it far better. He's far more thoughtful and it gives me kind of more firmer ground to stand on in conversation and in just my understanding. So no matter who you are, Michael Horton is a great resource to use. Yep, absolutely. So we got another email. Um, One part of it I'm going to respond to in the email, Um, but this email is from Jim Hedinger. I think I pronounced that right. Um, And he writes, I'm curious about the Society of Reform Podcasters. How was it formed? How are other podcasts added? And then he goes on to comment that he and a friend are planning on starting a podcast soon. Um, So he's kind of interested in in podcasting and that kind of stuff. Yeah, Jim, get after it. So Jesse... Can you regale us with the origins of the Society of Reform Podcasters? <laughs> well, once upon a time, so basically the way that the Society of Reform Podcasters started was a bunch of like-minded guys that got together and were working through starting their podcasts and trying to rally around techniques and approaches that would be helpful, that would be God-glorifying. So it was just kind of this weird, I don't know, it came about kind of organically as brothers in arms, people that got connected through the internet, through friendships. And uh, that's pretty much how it started. It's kind of an uneventful story, just God leading people through circumstances to be united together on a mission to really put together quality content material online. And it was really just born out of discussions that we had about wouldn't it be great if we rallied around each other to help one another to support this cause. Yeah. So that's kind of how it's it started. And um, I mean, so if people are interested in learning more about that or how we might add additional podcasts to that, what would you tell them, Tony? Well, you can go to uh, reformpodcasts.com, and um, we're still working on the website. Um, We had a bunch of vacations and other stuff going on, so we lost a little bit of steam getting the website going. But we are back in action. We're getting ready to kind of revamp some of the things. Um, So we're going to have a good about section there. We did a little episode that talked about kind of our core defining features as what does it mean to be reformed a little while back. Um, And one thing that I really like about, um, you know, there are a lot of podcast networks out there. But one thing that I really like is that our network focuses not necessarily on the podcasts themselves, but focuses on the podcasters. So when when we look to add a new podcast, um, we really look mostly at the, the people who are producing the podcast. So obviously there's we have doctrinal questions and things like that that we think about. Right now it's kind of invitation only. We're not we're not really like recruiting or taking applications. Um, but when we hear a podcast we like and we kind of get connected with the podcaster, 
um, we just reach out to them and ask them if they want to join. So if you have a podcast and you are interested, then shoot us a Facebook message and we can kind of explore that as we go. Um, and uh, Jim, best of luck to you on your podcast. Um, podcasting is great. Um, as we said in our kind of theology of podcasting episode, everybody should podcast. If you have the ability, if you've got something to say, um, just record it and put it on the internet. I mean, maybe that's terrible advice, but um, you know, it's, it's a great thing. So if you ever have questions or need help, I am more than happy to help with kind of getting stuff started and, and answering questions about how to, I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination, but um there are a lot of things that I wish that I had known going into it that we had to kind of learn by experience that um, I think would be helpful for a lot of people to kind of know. Um, so quick recommendation based on that. There's a podcast called The Audacity to Podcast. It's by a guy, I think his name is Daniel Lewis. Um, he's a Christian guy, but it's not really a Christian podcast Um it's meaning that it's not a podcast about Christian material. Um, he is talking about podcasting from just kind of a straightforward technical aspect, but he goes all the way from how do I record an episode? How do I make the sound better? How do I clear up background noise? All of that stuff is covered. He's got a backlog of like 300 episodes. So if you really are a glutton for listening to the same guy's voice for like days on end, you can listen to the whole thing. Um, but that's a great resource for people who are kind of getting started. Just put all your personal stuff online. What could go wrong? Yeah, exactly. I think so, we had an idea for a podcast like that once, didn't we? We did, yeah. yeah <laughs> that's going to happen still, hopefully. So just to plug fully the breadth and scope of all those on the, the Society of Reform Podcasters, I'm going to say an, a, a name of the one of the podcasts as part of the group. And Tony, you give me like a quick 10-second or like 10-word summary of what goes on in that podcast, right? Like a Reform Brotherhood five-second summary? <laughs> yeah, here we go. Ready? All right, let's do it. All right, the Reformed Outlook. Uh Random thoughts by random people about reform theology. Fast God stuff. Uh, quick, fun, and uh, energetic material to help you love God and others more. <laughs> That's pretty good. All right. Last but not least, Five for Fruit. Uh, five for Fruit is a five-minute podcast to give you your fix for reform theology and practice. And we should probably just do us. The Reform Brotherhood. Uh, I don't know. We, we talk about <laughs> stuff once in a while. It's the all anti-EFS all the time podcast. All the time. Hashtag all anti-EFS all yes. the time. Get that EFS junk out of here. Get it out. All right. So what now after all that stuff, after all that prolegomena, what are we talking about tonight? Well, we are going to talk about a theology called the New Perspective on Paul. Ooh, I love this. Yes. So um, the New Perspective on Paul is a theology that is relatively new, hence the term new perspective. Um, and it is um, contrasted with the uh, what you might call the old perspective on Paul, or as I like to call it, Paul. Um, so, uh, Jesse, <laughs> this, was, what, this was the most obvious introduction so far. There's a new perspective, which is recent. Yeah. There's an old perspective, which is not. Which is old. So, Jesse, um, do you have any experience with new perspective on Paul? I mean, like practically speaking or experientially? Yeah. Like what, what's your, what kind of interactions have you had with this theology? So most of my, the way I know this is probably if, if you, if you've heard the term and you're familiar with it, my bet is that you know it because of N.T. Wright. Yes. Who is just, you know, kind of a more well-known theologian. And that's how I know it through his reading. Cause he's probably the largest proponent. Would you say like kind of contemporary? Oh, yeah. Definitely the, thing. the most prominent popular and popular on both the technical sense and that he writes for popular audiences. He has some books right. that are for popular audiences on the subject and also popular in terms of just people seem to love N.T. Wright. Yeah. Um, he is one that's kind of polarizing in the sense that if you say you dislike N.T. Wright, usually people who love him come right after you. And, yeah. and I'm not making that claim. I'm not trying to put him on blast, but I think we're going to review some of what he talks about, of course, in the, in, through this conversation. But my understanding of like the way that he's writing, because he's the country doctor on this for me, because there's right. a lot of, a lot of nuance, a lot of technicality with this new perspective view, but he's the one that has kind of tended to distill it down and make it approachable so people can put their arms around it, at least to some extent. So, yeah. And he's mainly focused on this idea of, you know, Judaism was not a merit-based religion, but a covenant community created by God's grace. And that so plays in the justification. So I'm curious about like to hear your explanation of it and then to see how we talk about it, because I think for the average person, they don't feel a strong sense that this is important to them or right. that's even anywhere that demands their attention or focus. So, so hit me with like how you would explain this to somebody, the new perspective on Paul, who maybe has, has never even heard that phraseology before. 
Sure. So uh, the first thing that we have to recognize with the new perspective on Paul is that, um, as I said, it assumes that there was an old perspective on Paul. And the old perspective on Paul is more or less that um, Judaism at the turn of the first century, during the time of Christ and during the writing of the New Testament, was a religion that essentially thought that you could um, earn your way to salvation by obedience to the Mosaic law. Um, Or at the very least, you could lose your salvation by disobedience to the Mosaic law. And so the the idea of a merit-based or work-based religion was the assumption, um, primarily from just reading the New Testament. Um, Around, probably I want to say like 70 or 80 years ago, um, a, a scholarship wave kind of turned to understanding what's called Second Temple Judaism. And so when we talk about Second Temple Judaism, we're talking about not um, not the rebuilt, I don't know why it's not called Third Temple Judaism, to be honest with you, but not the rebuilt temple that was rebuilt under Nehemiah, but the rebuilt temple that was rebuilt by Herod the Great. So we're talking about probably 100 to 200 years before Christ to 70 AD is really the the period that we're talking about. And so scholars came into that that ser- um, sort of study and what they recognize and realize and this is true. So this is a this is a positive outcome of the study is that a lot of what's what kind of the average um, scholarship and the average person thinking about first century Judaism was thinking of was actually not the Judaism that we would see until after the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD is such a sort of a watershed event that it literally changed the way that Judaism works. So Judaism went from being a sacrifice based religion to being kind of an intellectual religion. So the sacrifice that Jews make now is a sacrifice of time, a sacrifice of devotion. It's not a bloody sacrifice. It's then, you know, nobody's killing lambs anymore. So they recognize that a lot of those post um, post temple realities were being imported into New Testament understandings, and so um, that that research um, sort of led people to say, "Well, we've got to understand the background culture of the New Testament in order to really understand the New Testament." Are you tracking with me so far? Right, and that's the part that is admirable: the idea that let's go back to understanding the actual context of what Paul was talking about in the culture in which he was addressing. So for me, like the way I would think about that is the perspective, the new Paul perspective is basically saying that Paul's problem with Judaism was not works righteousness the same way, for instance, like the Protestant reformers were understanding that text and we by extension, probably the same way, but it was this insistence on a covenant status for the Jews and the Jews by themselves. Right. So it's this idea that kind of like you said that the law was not a means of getting saved, but of staying saved. So keeping God's law was the appropriate response to this idea that Jews were in the covenant. And so because they were in the covenant, that's where they get justified. Right. And it is a reversal, so to speak, of the way that we might think about it. But supposedly, this is the way in which Paul was actually meaning to express his opinion about what it meant to be of the law, the works of the law. So for right. him... When we say works of the law, we're thinking of those that meritorious work. But in this perspective, we're talking about like circumcision, Sabbath, the Mosaic Code, like all these badges that affirm that the Jews were part of a community. And because they were part of a community, they were therefore justified in God's sight. And the works that they did thereafter were basically just to support that label. Is that, I mean, right. is that kind of fair? Yeah. And so scholars like N.T. Wright look at first century Judaism um, drawing a lot of their understanding from um, texts that happen in the intertestamental period. And they, they come to the conclusion, and I, I'll be transparent that I think it's the wrong conclusion, but they come to the conclusion that Judaism in the first century, in the centuries leading up to, um, to, to the first century, is a, a situation where um, you are made a part of the covenant by grace. And so you you are kind of declared by God to be part of his covenant community. And the things that we think of, like law keeping, um, tor- like Torah keeping, um, circumcision, the food laws, those are what N.T. Wright calls signposts that mark right. you out as part of the community. And so up until this point, um, we wouldn't actually really have many major disagreements with him on this. So the concept that God makes you part of his covenant um, – 
exclusively by grace and sort of in a declaratory fashion. Um, nothing you do merits that or um, causes it. God decides you're part of his covenant and then he marks you out and sets you aside as part of his covenant. Up until that point, um, with some probably some minor variations, Reformed theology and N.T. Wright are on the same trajectory. Right. What happens after that is where N.T. Wright goes astray. And this this is the reason why people like John MacArthur um, will say that he's like a false teacher and a heretic. I'm not going to go that far. Um, I think he's wrong, and I think he's wrong about some really important things. Um, but at the end of the day, I think he's probably a Christian who's wrong about certain things, and I don't think he's trying to deceive people. Right, I agree. But N.T. Wright takes that and he says, okay, so this is this is what you might call initial justification. This um, being brought into the covenant and being set apart and your sins are forgiven and you're made holy in a sort of definitive definitional sense. But then he says that as out of that definitional holiness or out of that position as part of the covenant flows a certain kind of life. And he, he takes a fairly monergistic st- uh, stance on this, right? He's still saying that it's it's the Holy Spirit who's causing these holy good works. He, so he's not saying that it's not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of theology. But then what he says is that at the final day, when we die or when Jesus comes back, that that initial justification is not sufficient to save us. But God has to then look at our lives and make an analytical decision about whether or not we were sufficiently holy and we lived a sufficiently holy life to um, to merit salvation, to merit entrance into God's eternal kingdom. And that's where he really just flies right off the rails is he turns final justification into something that is not done on the basis of Christ's merit, but is done on the basis of our own personal holiness. So one one of the struggles with N.T. Wright is he he has written so much. I think probably more than any other contemporary writer, he has written, I would say, probably more just in terms of volume than anyone else that I can think of. And that's including people like Mike, Mike Horton and even like Ben Witherington, who produce a huge volume of writing. But N.T. Wright's works are just enormous. So a lot of people haven't read all of N.T. Wright and haven't even read all of the pertinent discussion because some of it is very technical and esoteric. Um, I haven't read all of it, for example. And so sometimes it's hard because there's nuances that he brings out that you just miss because you can't read everything that he has to offer. Right. And his seminal work on that is probably what St. Paul really said. So to your point, he's actually writing very specifically in large volume about this very thing. So he's not making like side commentary about it or inferring. So there's a lot, there's a lot that one could read through and and sort through. And for me, he's basically making the argument of justification part one and part two. Exactly. And and there's something in between. So where we have all this common ground is that he's saying, well, Paul is, is teaching the representative and substitutionary work of Christ. So Christ does propitiate. He does turn away the wrath of God. Jesus recapitulates Israel's history so as to fulfill God's law and covenant promises. He is the last Adam. Okay, we're all down with that, so to speak. Then it gets into this weird thing about, well, God's justifying verdict on Jesus and his resurrection is passed upon believers now in anticipation of like that final acquittal, like you said, on judgment day. But right. but because of this non-meritorious sense of God has pulled you into the covenant, then there is behavior that comes or flows out of that. And you do get judged on that behavior, not in a way where there's entirely forensic justification, like the position has been sealed and delivered, but in the sense that there still is a point of where you kind of have to come and meet up with your, in your behavior with the initial justification that you received. And if the two don't weigh out on the scales of some kind of judgment, then there, in theory, is punishment for that. There is right. or, or essentially a lack of confirming place in the family of God. It, it gets a little strange. It's not altogether clear in my mind, but it get, I, we know for sure that the new Pauline perspective on that is the fact that there is something that you have to do in the covenant of grace. But what's strange to me, and this is where I'd love to hear perspective on, what's strange to me is like N.T. Wright is also very clear that you come into the covenant by grace and then you do all these things by grace, but somehow, like you don't, in other words, you don't do them because you're trying to earn something. But at the end, you are judged as if you were trying to earn something. Yeah, and so this is probably going to be sort of a controversial statement and I'm probably going to get some heat for it, but... I think that N.T. Wright's position um, and Reformed theology's position 
are actually much closer to each other than most people recognize. Yeah, I agree, and so, actually. Um, if you read somebody, um, so within Reformed theology, there's there's kind of broad camps. We talked a little bit about um, sort of the imputationist camp and the um, sort of the union with Christ camp. And th- that we talked about that in our, our um, Ordo Salutis episode. And so the imputationist camp, which would be people like Mike Horton or Scott Clark, um, J.V. Fesco, kind of the Westminster West theology. Um, they're going to they're going to kind of push any idea of meritorious works, even in terms of like rewards um, in heaven. They're going to push that to the side and basically say every good thing that comes to a Christian, any sort of thing that we we are able to please God with is actually an imputation of Christ's goodness. So my good works don't please God, but Christ's good works through me please God. Right. So that's kind of the imputationist strain of thought. And I, I tend to align myself more with that line of thinking. And then there's what might be called the unionist or the union with Christ um, sort of position. And they are going to hold a position. Someone like Mark Jones is a good example of this, where Christians, Christians, their own works genuinely please the father that we can do genuinely good works and we can genuinely earn rewards in heaven because of our good works. Um, so you have those two positions, but neither position would say that at, in the end day, at least as far as I know, in the end day, that when Christ or when God decides to allow us finally to come into his kingdom in terms of the final pronouncement of our righteousness, um, the end day, the white throne judgment or whatever the dispensationalists call it, um, they're going to look at that and say, all right, at the end day, God still makes a judgment, passes judgment on Christians. And um, both the union with Christ folks and the imputationists are going to say anyone who is righteous on that judgment is going to be righteous on the basis of Christ's merit alone. The imputation of Christ's active and passive righteousness is what gets us through that judgment. And we hear, well done, good and faithful servant, because Christ is a good and faithful servant. And right. he he was good and faithful on our behalf. So the variation and the change that you see in N.T. Wright and others like him is that um, rather than say that it's Christ's righteousness alone, it's Christ's righteousness that produces our good works. It's the Holy Spirit's energy that produces our good works. But when God, we get to the white, th- the th- great throne judgment or the great white throne judgment. It's been a while since I've read Tim LaHaye. Um, Christ is going to look at our works and judge us on the basis of our works. And so the reason that I'm hesitant to say that N.T. Wright is a, a straight up false teacher, a heretic, you know, burning, going to burn in hell, like some reformed folks will. And, and John MacArthur, who's not reformed, but would say that as well recently did say that is because he is still saying that the only reason we do those good works, the only reason that we are capable or that we do, even if we were capable, we still wouldn't do it is because the Holy spirit has done it through us and in us. And on some senses, uh, he holds kind of a predestination, a strong providence view that those things are still ordained according to God's good pleasure. And so he still, it's still by grace alone. It's still God, um, God producing in us that which is required for salvation. But the, the fact that that salvation is because God looks at us that's where it gets to be really close to sort of a Roman Catholic position. Right. Where in the Roman Catholic position, we're infused with grace, and then that grace changes us, and we produce good works out of that change. And um, and that those good works are what get us into heaven, um, more or less. So he, he, he skirts this line. In a lot of ways, his theology is not all that different than what you see in, in Aquinas or Augustine. It is both Aquinas and Augustine held this idea that Grace changes us and God produces good works in us. Um, And that's why I think it's fair to say that his position is far too close to the Roman Catholic position. Because at the end of the day, as um, R.C. Sproul is is apt to say in the final analysis, God is looking at us and making an an analytical assessment. He's looking at our good works and making a decision on the basis of our good works. Um, so I, I mean, I'm not sure how much more clear it can get than that is that N.T. Wright is saying our good works finally justify us. Um, but like I said, contrary to some other people, it's not, it's not as though God is not producing those, those good works in us. 
And there's a big difference between finally justifying and just confirming. So I'm, I'm thinking, I'll just go out on a limb and say, I'm guessing that both of us would affirm the fact that salvation is by faith alone, but not faith that is alone. So exactly. we're definitely saying that works are part of this in terms of confirming by way of fruit of the Spirit, that there is in fact a real demonstrative change. So this is where I kind of get what he's saying, but then for that to lead into, well, there's a justification part due, if you will, and it's based on that work seems like a bridge too far to cross for me. It's That argument is untenable because I affirm and appreciate that he's trying to say, let's get back to first century Judaism in the context. Let's understand what Paul was trying to really say and what he actually meant there. So I think the essential question is, was this non-meritorious law keeping in the context of like that gracious covenant? Is that really the dominant form of Judaism in Paul's day? And yeah. I don't think you need like to have a big fancy degree or lots of diplomas on the wall to say, well, we know that the majority of the Jews rejected Jesus as the messenger of the covenant. Right. And the majority of the Jews rejected the substance of the covenant. So I, I think it, it's possible that the majority of the Jews did have an emphasis on works righteousness, but it was disguised by these assertions of God's mercy. And that's where I think you're totally right. Cause I was going to say the same thing that this for me, like is cheek to cheek, if you will, with Roman Catholicism. Yeah. Because if you talk to like a very firm Roman Catholic, they're going to emphasize salvation by grace through faith. But there's all these traditions that God never gave us to keep in these practices that are inconsistent with a gracious salvation. And these are required and they're regarded as an instrumental causes of salvation alongside faith in Christ. And so I right. think though probably NTR would say, well, that's not exactly where he's going, although it seems that way on the face, that that is the slippery slope. So this is why I think it's important to have a conversation about this, because you know now when somebody says, especially speaking about the new Paul perspective or new perspective on Paul, that you have an understanding of, this just comes down to like basic terminology. What does it mean to be justified? How, right. how do we understand that? What does it mean to be saved entirely by faith alone through Christ alone? So, I mean, maybe that, that leads us well into like, how does justification fit into this, especially as we start to think about how like the reformers per se thought about that or how we should think about it in a biblical sense. How, how does justification fit into this new perspective? Yeah. And so kind of to contrast, let's talk about the reformed, the reform position. First. Finally, let's do it. So um, in the reform position, we have to recognize that the word justified or justification has different meanings. Right. Even in scripture, sometimes justified is this forensic declaration of righteousness, the equivalent to the judge putting down his gavel and saying not guilty. Right. That affects a new reality. It changes this really changes the status of the accused from being accused to being not guilty or in some cases from being guilty to being not guilty. There's also a sense in the New Testament that um, justified can mean roughly vindicated or demonstrated. And so. The way that I would explain it is that when Christ, um, when Christ's work is applied to us in time, right, you you have the judge saying not guilty, justified, slams down the gavel and he says justified, and it changes our state from being enemies and sinners of God, enemies of God and sinners to being children of God and righteous, where we're holy and we're set apart for His purposes. There is still a sense of a final justification, though. But the difference is that in, in that sense, when we're talking about justification, we're not talking about a verdict anymore. We're talking about right. um, God validating what has been done on our behalf. Exactly. And so even, even then, I would say that God looks at our good works, but not as um, a grounds to make his decision about us, but he looks at our good works in the final judgment. Because the language of that is all over the New Testament. We would be dishonest if we didn't acknowledge that the New Testament speaks about it as though our works actually matter in our salvation. And that's because they do actually matter in our salvation, but not in a way that they're the ground of our salvation. And so when we come before God in the final day, he is going to put down his gavel, but it's probably better to think of it as like a stamp. So our chart comes across the, the desk of God, right? Major anthropomorphisms there. But our chart slides across the 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 desk of God and he reviews our case and he takes his stamp and he stamps at the top justified. Now that stamp doesn't do anything except recognize the status and 
recognize that the evidence of our life lines up with the status that we are in. Right. And so for the reformed, our justified status will necessarily flow into sanctification, which will necessarily flow into good works. The difference is that God makes a dec- on, on the, the new perspective, God makes a decision. He makes us part of his covenant. And then we come before him and it's not validated. It's he is either declaring us not guilty or he isn't. And so that's where it becomes tricky. And so in Reformed theology, justification um, in the first sense is that God, as a sheer act of his grace on the basis of the work of Christ, declares us to be no longer his enemies. He gives us clemency, right? He he makes that the governor's call right before the prisoner is executed, and he declares that this person will no longer be held accountable for their crimes. And he does that on the basis of Christ's uh, sacrifice. Um, we just have to maintain that at no point does God make a decision or a judgment on us. He doesn't ever analyze us and decide to declare us justified on the basis of our works. It's always on the works of Christ. Right. Yeah, that's the that's a huge difference because it, it's basically like saying like professional expert guitar players know their scales. And so necessarily, if you ask them to play a scale, they'll play it perfectly because they are expert guitar players. Right. Um, but to judge it and say, well, there's a possibility that they wouldn't play the scale correctly, uh, even though they're an expert is to me kind of like a backwards way to think about it. So and we're not just saying, you know, it is, I think the problem here is that we're not saying you're justified by believing in justification by faith alone, right. but it is real faith, like self-abandoning trust in Jesus Christ who was raised for our justification. So it's a totally different idea that I don't have to do anything, but not even out of necessary compulsion, but out of like an actual transformation of the nature that I do things differently that I do right. obey by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there are works that are manifested in our lives. But Romans 1 through 3 seems like clear to me that there's an indictment for all humanity. So that's both for the Jews and the Gentiles. And it's not limited to the works of the law in, in simply like a Jewish way. But the application is that God requires, whether we are Jew or Gentiles, that everybody have a certain spiritual and ethical righteousness. That's why we all fall. That's why Paul is saying like, everybody is a sinner. So we need that righteousness. So for me, the justification that comes to the biblical text is 100% authoritative and forensic. So right. it is, like you said, it is, a, it is a final representation. Like this is what's happening. So I want to go back to what you said before, because I think what we lose in this conversation or the new perspective on Paul loses is the idea of imputation. So yeah. anytime there's ambiguous language there, if we don't affirm the imputation of, of Christ's righteousness to the ungodly, we need to remember that we need to speak of righteousness that's primarily in terms of God's covenant faithfulness. And when we move away from that, it's a serious shift. So the imputation is what's really important to me. Like we're, we're literally being injected with the righteousness that God requires. Right. So if you're injected with it, if that's a real and true thing. I guess one might ask, like, how can we lose it? Or what more do we really need to do? There's some, like, weird double jeopardy almost in this. What more do we need to do when we stand before him? A truly injected person who receives that righteousness will be different. And so, of course, their actions are important in so much as they confirm that, hey, you've actually been set up with the imputation of Christ. Right. Yeah, and that's an important point is that N.T. Wright um, doesn't, strictly speaking, doesn't deny imputation. But the question has to be, well, what is it that's being imputed? Exactly. And so N.T. Wright looks, and I think some of this is really good work. Um, in in point of fact, a lot of my journey into Reformed theology came from reading his book, um, Jesus and the Victory of God. Oh, yeah, and yeah, for sure. That's a good book. He makes the argument, more or less, that Israel never returned from exile. They They remained in exile, even though they were in the land. They still remained in exile, and that was because they never, um, they never really got back to covenant faithfulness. They were still being disobedient to the covenant, and so Christ comes as the new Israel, and this this has a lot of consonants with Reformed theology. He comes as the new Israel, and he is the only Israelite that returns from exile. 
So he comes back. He's the faithful one. And this is, you know, we won't get into all the nuances, but this is why you'll see N.T. Wright wants to talk about how we're we're saved by the faithfulness of Christ rather than saying we're saved by faith in Christ. There's the subjective, objective, genitive question in Romans 3 or 4. I don't remember per se where it is. Um but Christ is the faithful Israelite. He's the faithful Israel. And so he returns from exile. And then he, what he imputes to us is, is his covenant faithfulness. And so that's where it is that we come into the covenant by grace, is that we come into the covenant by grace. We, we return from Israel's exile because Christ's covenant faithfulness is imputed to us. The problem is, is that his ongoing obedience is not imputed to us. And that's why we have to then um, merit salvation on our own is because we get into the covenant by grace. Right. We have to stay there by means of our own covenant obedience and faithfulness. Right. Which is scary. Oh, it's terrifying. I mean, aside from like the intellectual ramifications or even the theological ones, just to think about if you really felt convicted about that kind of life, what it would take to, I don't even know what it would take to live with a guilty-free conscience that you were actually, it's like, I don't know, it's like somebody giving you, it's like somebody giving me a Ferrari and saying, the only requirement here is like, you got to keep it in pristine working order. Like you got to right. be a fantastic mechanic and be like, can I take it to somebody to fix it? And they're like, no, no, no you got to do it yourself. Like you got to keep it up. And I'm going to come back and expect that you're honoring the gift in the way that I want you to with all of, you know, all the different intricacies of the vehicle. Like that would be so, I would never drive it. I mean, that would be, right. and even that would probably cause damage to it by not using it. So it would just be completely overwhelming. I would not be able to handle that particularly well. Yeah. And that's exactly it is, you know, you ask, well, what would it take? Well, the Westminster Confession tells us perfect and perpetual right. obedience. Yeah. Right. Right. So even if, and that's, that's where the problem comes in is that even, and his, his response would be something along the lines of like, well, the Holy spirit, the Holy spirit enables you to do it. But the problem is that we still don't ever do it though. So even if we say, well, the Holy spirit enables you to live the perfect perpetual ongoing obedience that you need, nobody does that. And so, you know, there's a famous account where somebody kind of confronts Tom Wright and says, all right, pretend that there is a woman in your congregation and she calls you in the middle of the night and says, the doctor says, I only have 30 minutes to live. I need you to get down here right now so you can pray with me. And so, you know, you rush down to the hospital and you're at this bedside of this little old lady who's about to die. And she says, what do I have to do to be saved? How do I know that I'm going to be saved? How do you answer? And Tom, Tom's answer I guess we're on a first name basis now, but yeah, you guys are um, tight, evidently. Right. Wright's answer was more or less like, oh, that's an interesting question. I'll have to think about it. And he never really gave an answer. And so the the difference is that, you know, for for him, I have to extrapolate because he didn't answer the question. But the answer has to be live a life of covenant faithfulness in good works. Right. The answer is not depend on Christ, throw yourself on the mercy of God, demonstrated and obtained in Christ. The answer is be a good person, obey right. the commandments, you know? So it's, it's a different set of commandments. He has kind of a new covenant theology vibe at some points that it's not the old moral law, that there's a new law that we receive in Christ, but it's still that, that idea of perpetual perfect obedience is still something he has to account for that maybe he has, he's written probably tens of thousands of pages of, of writing on this. I haven't read all of it. I haven't read most of it. Um, but that's that's just a roadblock that I can't get past. Yeah, I mean, well, the new perspective is, you know, depend on Christ to get into the covenant, but your point is still good. Like, w after that, it's, it, I don't want to say it's probably unfair to say, like, depend on yourself, but in a large part for that particular question, that's a fair thing to ask, isn't it? Because everybody's minds immediately goes to, well, what are the outworkings of that? In that dire situation where their death is imminent, what can be done, if anything, to ensure that you will actually live eternity with your Savior. This right. is why it's so close to Roman Catholicism, because there are all those same types of questions in Rome, because you have all these things that must come alongside Christ. So we tend to go to the hyper, you know, all these like hyperbolic, hypothetical situations where they can't be done. And so we rightfully ask, well, what happens if you can't do them? Do you just lose out altogether? Th right. This is why I think you and I talked about this. Like, for instance, the really weird, crazy question that had to be addressed in the Roman Catholic Church recently in terms of there's some writing published on this about how long does the Eucharist remain the Eucharist in your body <laughs> right? once you consume it? 
Right. That's, I mean, I chuckle at that, but that's not an unreasonable question given the parameters and the contract that's been created. So this is the same problem. Yeah. I don't know how you answer that. I just think it's scary when you think about what the answer would, would have to be. It would have to be for that woman. You didn't do enough. It's too late right now. I mean, yeah. what, what can be done? What more can be done? Well, and that's that's exactly it is. The Roman Catholic model is on, and this isn't to necessarily imply that the new new perspective isn't honest, but the Roman Catholic model is honest enough to say you can't have assurance. Right. If if you're going to have assurance, it's going to be by special divine revelation from God. It's not going to be by reading your Bible. It's not going to be by assessing your own good works. Even um, you you may just not you may just not have enough. You may not be able to to cut it. Um, and I think the problem is that the new perspective, either because they haven't haven't wrestled with this question, or I think probably there's an impulse to not wrestle with the question because they kind of know the outcome, comes to the same conclusion. You can't know if you were faithful enough, if you lived within God's boundary markers enough to, to merit and to be able to be looked at and declared just. And that's, I mean, that's a terrifying prospect. That is literally taking every, every bit of ground we gained in the Reformation. And this is why it's so important, is all of the ground we gained in the Reformation, and you're just throwing it away. Right. All of the ground in terms of um, kind of taking the people out from underneath an unbearable burden of the law that they can't fill, they can't, they can't hold up, and casting that burden on Christ, gone. All right. of the burden of not knowing your eternal salvation or not being able to re- be reasonably certain about the eternal destiny of your loved ones, all of that, gone. So the the pastoral application of this, this is very much a discussion that lives in the academy. And one of the things that concerns me is that I hear a lot of kind of your general evangelical pastor who loves the winsome way that Tom Wright writes and loves how funny he is and how kind of turn a phrase he can do. They read this stuff and it kind of gets into the back of their head and they don't understand or they don't they don't study the technical side of this enough to recognize what he's actually saying. And that will eventually work its way into pastoral practice and preaching. It can't not do that. For sure. So it's really scary to see, you know, pastors that I respect, um, pastors from my my past that I respect and love. I hear them quote N.T. Wright. And I hear them quote him on some of this stuff. And I'm like, oh, don't do that. You don't know what you're doing. Um, right. And it, it, it may sound condescending, but it, it, they literally don't know what they're doing. They don't know this stuff. Um, so we're, we're kind of coming up to the end of our time. So I want to make a couple quick recommendations. Um, there's a book, uh, uh, there's a iTunes university. Uh, if you go to the reform theological seminary, um, sort of iTunes university page, there was a series of lectures, um, given by Don Carson, um, that really just dismantles this. Um, I don't know of any book length responses. I know they're out there, but I can't think of any off the top of my head. But if you just go to Amazon and look up response to new perspective on Paul, um, you'll find a lot. And um, oh, what's his name? Robert Kara, who teaches at Reformed Theological Seminary, just wrote a book called Cracking the Foundations of New Perspective on Paul or something along those lines. So all of the links to that will be in the show notes. But if this is something that you have encountered or you're, you're encountering on an ongoing basis, those are the best places to start to really get an idea of it. Right on. I love that. Yeah, I I would say like in wrapping this up, that a biblical classical view of justification is justification is grounded on what Christ has already done. And so the day of judgment will confirm and declare that. So by summary, and this is a quote that I I have from what would St. Paul, what St. Paul really said by N.T. Wright. And this is what he's saying. So quote, Present justification declares on the basis of faith what future justification will affirm publicly and on the basis of the entire life, end quote. So on that language, that's why we're saying it's really kind of hard to avoid the idea of justification as involving faith and works in a way that doesn't really match Paul's teaching on grace and justification of the ungodly. So to me, what's in view here is the idea that God gets us into the covenant, but we have to keep ourselves there strangely by non-meritorious works yeah. <laughs> through, through the Spirit's enabling. So this is where my heart is sensitive to, I think, where he's going with this idea of it cannot be, it is by faith alone, but faith that not, is not alone. Right. But at the same time, when we think of this idea of imputation, again, by kind of this roundabout summary, 
it's been important for me to remember that the amnesty that God grants us is not cheap. So the breakdown of like the courtroom analogy that people like to use is, well, well God just says, you're standing trial. And he just says, you're free. Th- that's not the case at all because Jesus actually gets punished. So there's a, right. a, a period on the cross, which we do not understand in all of its grand mystery, where the weight of my sin and yours, past, present, and future, is actually placed on Jesus Christ. Because if that were not true, then God would just be this megalomaniac who's actually punishing an innocent man. But right. because he's punishing his son and because the son is actually bearing the cross, there, and then we get that by imputation, that that punishment has been born. It's been paid for, not just granted and said as if God was like, it's, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. I'll let it go this time. He doesn't let it go. He lets it be punished for us. Yeah. And so if that's true, what does righteousness not mean but is accumulation of all of the things that we have done or should have done. And so if those things have been made right, then what we are doing in the present and in the future by way of being transformed into a new person regenerated does not mean that we need to have a second justification. Right. So for me, it's a, it's a totally separate thing. Yeah. And just to sort of, you, you asked a question earlier kind of about, it is this sort of revision of first century Judaism even legit? Yeah, and right. the answer from everything that I've read is absolutely not. Right. So the the you know a lot of ink has been spilled and metaphorical blood has been spilled trying to demonstrate that NT writes exegesis is wrong that he doesn't understand Romans and that's all important and good work. But the very beginning of all of this was this revisioning of what first century. Judaism is. So the new perspective on Paul starts with a new perspective on Second Temple Judaism. Right. And the fact is, and and um, Dr. Kara's book goes into this. I haven't read it yet, but I've listened to a couple of his interviews. He spends a lot of time on this question, the historical question. And absolutely, hands down, he has demonstrated that the old perspective on Second Temple Judaism is actually the right perspective. And if the old perspective on Second Temple Judaism is the right perspective, then the old perspective on Paul is also the right perspective. Right on. I love it. Right let, me, let me end with, can I read something from the Shorter Catechism? Let's do it. Yes. All right. So I think this is a good way to read. Uh, to read. It's a great way to read, but also a good way <laughs> to, to wrap up. Um, here's what the Shorter Catechism says on justification. I just love this. It's just a, it's a little nugget. A justification nugget, if you will. Yes. A, a just a nugget. Just a nugget. Justification is an act of God's free grace in which he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight for the sake of the righteousness of Christ alone, which is credited to us and received by faith alone. Yes. Amen. That's beautiful. So, so if you would like to get a hold of us, Jesse, how would someone do that? I just want to affirm how smooth that was <laughs> in transition. I actually saw it in your face where you were like, oh, uh, no, it was, it was so sorry. That wasn't meant to be like, I wasn't cringing. That was like, Ooh, yeah. <laughs> oh, transition. Yeah. <laughs> so hit us up on email. Um, we love email though. I forgot this week that we even had an email. So I also didn't check it. I'm going to get better <laughs> at that, but you can hit us up at reformed brotherhood at gmail.com. How else can people get at us, Tony? You can tweet at us at Reform Brohood. Uh, you can also check out our Facebook page. We don't have a Facebook group anymore, but you can check out our Facebook page by searching for Reform Brotherhood. And Jesse, what is that sweet, sweet phone number for people to call us on? Oh, it is 607-444-2767. Bros. Call us up. We need some voicemails. We do. Um, I love Kerry Gephardt, and he is a faithful voicemail lever, but we would love to get some voicemails for someone besides Kerry Gephardt because there's only so many permutations of Terry Jeff Part or <laughs> Jerry Gephardt or whatever Google thinks is his name this week that we can stomach before we laugh ourselves sick. Um, and then on top of that, we would love it if you go to um, iTunes and give us five new perspectives. <laughs> Right. So if your if your old perspective was that we were terrible, then come give us a new perspective that we are worth five stars. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I think that's the best I've got for that joke. I re- I really cannot top that. And then you can also check us out as well as all of our other uh, co compatriots on the Society of Reform Podcasters at reformpodcast.com. Spread some love. We know you got commutes. We know you need to mow the lawn still because it's September and it's probably still warm. So get those podcasts in your ears. True that. True that. I, I mowed the lawn yesterday. 
Did you listen to some podcasts? I did listen to some podcasts. Yeah. I listened to D.A. Carson's podcasts on The New Perspective on Paul. Yeah, there we go. we were going to do this episode. There we go. I love it. There we go. Excellent. All right. Any final closing words for us, Jesse? Oh, no. I've I've closed out enough. Although, can I just say that I thought like your Minnesotan accent was coming out when you said that thing about Carrie being a good voicemail lever. I thought you were saying <laughs> lever and I was confused lever. for a second. Like, well, he's good at providing leverage to us, I guess. <laughs> he provides leverage. Do on you the say voicemail. lever? We're like, hey, can I, I just need to pull this lever. No, we say lever. <laughs> yeah, we're not from England. Yeah, I don't know why. I just thought you said lever. I also don't know in what situation you'd be saying out loud. I just need to pull this lever real quick. <laughs> yeah. You don't really encounter levers or levers that often anymore. It's not like we're like a uh, turn of the century steam engine conductors pulling no. levers. And Can stuff. I just say, this is why nobody should buy me a Ferrari and expect that I'm going to upkeep it. I can't even handle levers. Yeah. I would drive that thing straight into a curb. I'd forget that it's like a millimeter off the ground and I would just destroy the undercarriage. That should be where we end it. Destroy the undercarriage. Yep. Destroy the undercarriage. <laughs> well, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs> uh...